Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Ephesians, the fourth chapter, where my Bible is opened up. And I'll encourage you to be finding Ephesians chapter 4 as well. That will be the first of many passages that we'll be looking at and discussing for these next few minutes as we reverence God through the study of His Word. And as you're finding Ephesians chapter 4, let me join in the welcome from earlier. What a great privilege it is to be in this number this morning. I'm glad to be back after a week of vacation. I'm excited and raring and ready to go in the pulpit uh, this morning. And we do have just a fine number, and I'm glad to get to be uh, just a part of this number. What fine singing we've had this morning. And I especially appreciate the singing of that last song. And some of the words of that song ought to seem familiar to us because... They're found right here in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Read with me here in Ephesians 4 and in verse 4. The Bible says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I am impressed here with the counting of the number one. How many of you here can count to one? Almost all of us, I expect, can count to one. It is one of the very first things that we teach little kids so that by the time that they are one and we ask them, how old are you? They can hold up that one little finger. It's not that hard to count to one. In fact, speaking of that business of holding up one finger... Even professional athletes who are not generally known for being profoundly scholarly, even they can hold up that one finger and count to one. We're number one. Everybody, it seems, can count to one. That is until we come to Ephesians chapter 4. How many churches are there? Ephesians 4 verse 4 says there is one body. That seems to be saying something about how many churches there should be. In fact, just to make sure that we're all speaking the same language, just turn back a page or two to Ephesians chapter 1, this one body. What is this one body? Well, Ephesians 1 explains it for us. In Ephesians 1 and in verse 22, Paul says there that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so Ephesians 4 says there's one body. And Ephesians 1 says that the body is the church. How many churches are there? The math here is not overly complicated. It seems to me that the book of Ephesians, and in fact the whole of the New Testament, is teaching that there is only one church. But of course, as soon as you say something like that, you immediately are going to be greeted with, Oh, now hold on. Hold on just a minute there, partner. Who are you to say that there is only one church? You know, who are you to go around teaching such a thing as that? You know, don't you know, it's just a great and wonderful thing that we have all of these different kinds of churches in the world today. All these different churches for people to choose from and to go to. You know, you're saying that there's only one church because... Well, because you just think your church is better than everybody else's church. You know and I know that that is exactly the response that many people give whenever you talk about the one church concept. In fact, a whole lot of brethren are actually getting tired of that reaction. And so as a result, more and more brethren are they are embracing the idea that there is more than just one church. You know, that maybe 
Maybe we've made too big of a deal out of this one church doctrine. You know, maybe we, maybe we need to be more flexible. Maybe we need to be more open-minded about this. Any of you remember the name Kenneth Starr? Kenneth Starr, back in the mid-1990s, was the special prosecutor in some of the scandals involving the Clinton administration. What you may not know about Ken Starr, though, is that he was the dean of the law school at Pepperdine University, a school that is associated with mainstream churches of Christ. And while Ken Starr was at Pepperdine, he actually attended and worshipped with the University Avenue Church of Christ. And he was even quoted as saying, I am thankful to be worshipping with the Church of Christ. However, just a couple of years ago, Kenneth Starr was named the president of Baylor University. It is the nation's largest Baptist university. And before Ken Starr was hired there, he actually told the search committee that he would be happy to worship with a Baptist church. Church of Christ, Baptist church, they're all pretty much the same. We're all going to heaven. We're just kind of taking different paths and roads to get there. That is a pretty common line of thinking. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to emphatically dispute that line of thinking. This morning, I want to help us go back to some basics. I want to help us to secure our foundations a little bit about one of the most very foundational, one of the most fundamental concepts in all of the New Testament. That is the one church. And I hope that as we look at what the Bible says about that, I hope that all of us in this room today, all of us will be helped by this study. Young people, young people, when you grow older and when you leave Lakeside, when you go off to college somewhere, what kind of factors are going to come into play as to where you will worship and what kind of congregation you will work with? Will you just go to whatever church is in closest proximity to your dorm or to your apartment? You know, hey, this, you know, this Methodist church over here, it's close. This community church is real close. This Bible church is close. I, I guess I'll just go over here. You know, church is you know, just kind of all the same. I'll just, I'll just go to this one. Or what about maybe some of our younger couples? Maybe you get transferred. Your job at work causes you to have to transfer and you have to move away from here. Will you seek out a faithful church? A faithful church that maybe even requires you to drive some distance to worship and be a part of? Or will you say, hey, you know, right here close by, here's a, here's a close church that, yeah, I mean, it's a church. Got church written out on the front. They got all kinds of great programs and things that they're offering, all kinds of things for our kids to be associated with and to be a part of. I mean, come on, church is church is church. It's just, just different kinds of flavors. Or what about as well? What about whenever we're having the church conversation with our neighbors and with our coworkers or with our classmates? And the conversation inevitably, and it almost always does, it inevitably devolves into the, you all down there, you just think you're the only ones going to heaven. You folks in the church of Christ, you just think you've got the, the market on salvation, you just think you've got it cornered. What do we say to that? How do we respond to that kind of thing? Well, this morning I want us to give some attention to, to math and to counting, to the number one, and to see what the Bible says about how many churches there should be. Because when we do that, we will come to find, we will come to find that there are two important truths. Two important truths that I want you to know are very, very different from the way the religious world today thinks about the idea of church. You know, in our auditorium class this morning, we talked about what it means to be ready to give a defense, to give an answer for what it is that we believe. 
Are you ready to open up your Bible and find that answer, find that defense concerning the one church? Let's do that this morning. That all needs to begin with understanding this first important truth. And that is that the Bible clearly teaches that there should be only one church. Christ's church. We've seen that already from Ephesians chapter 4, haven't we? You know, imagine, what if you had read the book of Ephesians? What if you had read those passages that we read earlier? What if you just were reading that purely at face value? You were just reading what it says without any further explanation. You didn't have a preacher to come along and describe and explain all that to you. You're just reading what it says. What conclusion would you come to about how many churches there ought to be? I think anybody with like a you know fourth grade education would read those verses and say, well, there's supposed to just be one church. In fact, it is Jesus Himself who taught this very thing. Look in Matthew, the 16th chapter. In Matthew chapter 16, this is the occasion where Peter makes this great and wonderful confession before the Lord. And the Lord then responds to that in Matthew 16 and in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 16, 18 now. And I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How many churches did Jesus envision? That's a fair question, isn't it? I think if I'm studying with somebody, if I'm talking with somebody, I want to just bring them to Matthew 16, and I want to ask that question. How many churches did Jesus envision? It's clear from this text that Jesus expected that there would be one church. That he would build that church, end of story, period, punctuation mark, exclamation point, whatever you want to put there. That all disciples, all true followers of Jesus Christ, they would be a part of that one church, his church. And in fact, the New Testament specifically warns disciples not to be dividing up into separate competing religious organizations. I'm looking in 1 Corinthians now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, our world says that it's just, you know, it's just great. And that it's awesome that we have so many choices in churches. But what does an inspired apostle say about that? Does he think that's a great and awesome thing? First Corinthians chapter 1, read with me in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I think that what was happening at Corinth very much accurately reflects what we see in the religious world today in 2016. You have different religious groups all following and going in different directions all under this general banner of what we might just call Christianity. What's Paul say about that? Paul does not say, hey, that's great. Thumbs up for that. Keep that going, you guys. You know, you all believe the, the same core fundamentals and so, so it's okay for you to be divided up since you all agree on, you know, on Jesus and that stuff. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say anything like that at all. 
Paul says, you over here, you over there, and you back there, and you over here. He says, you all need to get it together. Let there be, verse 10, no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And maybe right here is as good a place as any to point out as well that Paul does not say that all of these different religious groups, that when you, when you put them together, that constitutes the complete and full body of Christ. That again is a very common idea today. That you have all of these different religious groups with different names and different ideologies, but when you put them all together in aggregate, that totally makes the full, complete body of Christ. For example, from the United Methodist website, they say the following. They said the branches, the branches of Christ's church have developed diverse traditions that enlarge our store of shared understanding. There it is. All these different branches of Christ's church. All these different churches, when you put them together, that makes up the church. And as you can see, just kind of by the wording of that, they're saying that that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. When you have all these branches, all these different traditions, you put them together and it helps to increase our our shared understanding. And so when you use definitions like that, and we hear a lot of that today, what happens is you have the church... Kind of looking something like this. Where you have the Methodists and the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and every other religious group that you can think of, they're all in Jesus. That's really the only thing that matters. But when you put them all together, that's what makes up the church. And of course, if you haven't figured it out already, what you have there is you have the very essence of denominationalism. You know, since we're talking about math this morning, I might as well go ahead and say a word here about fractions. I know young people right now are getting cold chills down their spine talking about fractions. I don't like to talk about fractions, but think about the word denominator. We have to use that word when we talk about fractions. Well, these are, these are different denominations. And much of the religious world believes that when you take each of these different parts, that's the idea of a denominator, it's a a part of a whole. When you put all of these parts together, it makes up the whole. It makes up the total. It makes up the church. And I would say this morning that is as nice as that sounds and maybe as pleasant as that graphic with the tree, as pleasant as that looks, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that doesn't work. Christ is not divided. In fact, look with me in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when you understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you come to realize that this tree business, with all these different branches of different churches and denominations, you come to realize this tree it doesn't even make sense. It can't make sense. Because the church is not made up of various churches or various organizations. What's the church made up of? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church, the body of Christ, it is made up of people. Of saved individuals. Not various religious groups. Look with me in John the 15th chapter. In John chapter 15, here's where I suppose this imagery of the the tree and all the different branches, here's where I guess this comes from. But it comes from a misunderstanding of what John 15 teaches. In John 15, Jesus is not talking here about competing religious groups. No, when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, read with me beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine. 
And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5 now. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to individual disciples. He's not talking about different churches. He's not talking about the Episcopalian group or the, the Methodist group or the Lutheran branch or the, you know, the Roman Catholic branch, the Presbyterian branch. No. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. That includes me, Josh McKibben. It includes Randy Parsons, Janet Parsons, and right on down the line. That includes individual Christians. You see, this vine and branches metaphor, it's not about churches. And that is because the church that Jesus built, it is not made up of all kinds of different religious organizations that somehow fall under the big giant umbrella of Christendom, all with their different names and their different practices and their different doctrines. The Lord's church, the Lord's church is made up of people, of Christians, of saved individuals. In fact, that is clearly spelled out for us in Acts the second chapter. Would you find Acts 2? In Acts 2, here is the beginning of the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Peter has preached this amazing gospel sermon. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, in response to that sermon, Acts 2, 41, so those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What were these 3,000 people added to? Verse 47. Verse 47 And the Lord added to their number. Some translations say the Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. That right there is what the church is composed of. The church is composed of men and women who have submitted to Christ in baptism and who have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus in all things. And that includes being content with His church. Not going off and I'm going to build something different. I'm going to organize something that's completely different than the church that Christ intended. Remember, how many churches did Jesus say He was going to build? My church. Just one. Which means if you want to please Jesus, and I know that I'm interested in pleasing Jesus, then you need to find His church. You need to find the one that He Built. The Bible speaks of just one church, and that is the church of, or the church belonging to, Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Bible goes on to tell us about a second important truth. And that is that whenever you have more than one church, that just creates all kinds of problems. And first and foremost, at the top of that list, is it denies the authority of Scripture. If you were to just ask me my opinion as to why we have all of these different and competing churches today, and they're all teaching and practicing different things, my answer would be simple and it would be straightforward. And that is that I believe people today do not have respect for the authority of God's Word. Go back to 1 Corinthians. This time look in chapter 4. We find that that was actually the problem of all this division in Corinth. 
All these problems and fussing and fighting and different beliefs and we, we're of this person and we're of that person. Where did all that come from? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, it's because they weren't respecting the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look in verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. Paul says you need to respect the Scriptures. Just do what the Bible says. When you do that, that brings unity. That brings harmony whenever we submit to the authority of the Bible. When people don't do that, though, trouble is sure to follow. And so imagine. Imagine someone says, you know what I think the church needs? I think the church needs some kind of of global governing structure where one man is kind of overseeing and is in charge of everything. Somebody else then says, well, well, where do we read about anything like that in the Bible? Somebody else says, well, I don't know that we do, but we're going to have that anyway. We're going to have us a pope. Well, the people who want to be faithful to the Bible, be faithful to the Scriptures, they're not going to be a part of a church like that. So what are they going to do? They're going to have to separate. Now what do you have? You have two churches. Maybe a little bit of time passes by now. And somebody says, you know what I think would be great? I think it would be great if we had instrumental music in our worship. That just, you know, instrumental music just sounds so pretty when it accompanies the singing. Somebody says, well, well, where do we read about that in the New Testament? We don't read about that at all in the New Testament. Well, folks say, well, we, we really want that. We want that music. And so we're going to roll ourselves in a piano next week. But the folks who want to be faithful to the Bible, to the pattern of the New Testament, the folks who are content with what the New Testament says about just singing, what have they got to do? They've got to, they've got to move out. Now what do you got? Now you got three churches. Maybe a little bit more time passes by. And somebody says, you know what? We've been teaching this baptism stuff. We just seem like we're just a little too hardcore about all this baptism for salvation stuff. You know what? I believe that you can just be saved just by, just by having faith in your heart. Just by accepting Jesus in your heart and letting Him be your personal Savior. Well, of course, the people who want to hold on to what the Bible says about salvation, what are they going to do? They're going to have to move out again. Now you've got four churches. What happened here? What happened is, people did not submit to the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. I want to say very pointedly that the solution to all of the disunity in our world religiously, is to just go back to the Bible. And unfortunately, most religious groups today, they believe that the solution is to just ignore all of the disunity and all of the problems with that. They would rather just pretend that in some way we really do have unity with one another. And I can assure you that as I studied and as I prepared for this lesson this morning, I read all kinds of material from all kinds of church websites, from the World Council of Churches and various other groups that like to talk about the unity of all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Which is just laughable. Because there's not unity of any kind. Particularly since it is not politically correct on our part to point out error. To call error for what it is. To speak up and to say, hey, hey, whoa, 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 that's going beyond what the Scriptures say. Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We dare not do that lest we be labeled as judgmental. I mean, come on, who are you to be saying those things? Who are you to be saying that what you're doing is right and what others are doing is wrong? Come on, you can't say that. You can't be right on everything. 
But of course, the question is not whether I am right or you're right. The question is, is the Bible right? And the truth of the matter is, the Bible is right. The Bible is right on everything. And when we do things just simply according to the Bible, when we do things according to the pattern of the Bible, then I want to suggest that we are doing exactly what pleases the Lord. Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's how it worked in New Testament times. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, look in verse 13. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, Paul tells his young brother in the faith, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Pattern, that's a great word. Maybe a word that maybe we would be more, even more used to would be the word blueprint. Got some people that do building. They know about blueprints. We're trying to do things according to the blueprint that's been supplied to us in the Scriptures. Which means we don't need creed books. The song that we sang mentioned about creeds. We don't need church manuals. We don't need statements of faith. What we just need is we just need to go back to the Bible. Respect its authority. The Bible is the only thing that has ever brought unity to people. And it is the only thing that ever will bring unity. Look in Acts the 17th chapter. In Acts chapter 17, if you picked up a bulletin this morning, you might have noticed I already kind of wrote some things about these folks. In Acts chapter 17, here's some people who were mighty interested in appealing to the Scriptures. And they wanted to do that even when an apostle was standing in the pulpit preaching. In Acts 17 and in verse 11, talking about these Jews in Berea. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to be characterized by. Examining the Scriptures. Let's just let the Bible direct us in all matters of faith and practice and worship and in work. And I realize that it is right about at this point, as you're kind of laying out these kinds of ideas, right at this point, somebody's probably going to say, you know what, you just think you've got it all right. You all down there, you just think you are all right. And that is certainly not the case at all. That is not the claim that I am making this morning. But I want to say this. I want to say that just because I can't draw a perfect circle doesn't mean that I don't recognize a circle when I see one. And likewise, just because I can't draw a perfect circle, that doesn't mean that when somebody comes over here and draws a triangle, that I can't recognize, you know what, that's completely, that doesn't look anything like a circle. Just because I can't draw a perfect circle doesn't mean that I don't know a circle when I see one. You follow the analogy here? Just because I can't do everything exactly the way that I wish that I could doesn't mean that I can't look into the pattern of the Scriptures and see what I ought to be doing. You see, it's not a matter of thinking, I've got it all right. It's not a matter of me being arrogant, being puffed up. Oh, I'm just so much better. We're so much better than everybody else. No. It's a matter of the Bible's way being better than everybody else's way. In fact... That then sheds a light and highlights for us another problem that comes whenever you have all of these different churches in the world. And that is that it just feeds into this idea that really the only thing that matters is just how sincere you are. You know, since all these churches teach all different things, then then really what you believe and what you practice, it really doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about all those specifics. 
You know, if denomination A is teaching one thing about how to be saved, and then denomination B is teaching something different, and denomination C is teaching something completely different than A or B, and since we can't dare not say anything that might offend someone in terms of talking about right and wrong, then, then well, the only way to reconcile those differences is to just say that, well, none of it really matters. That God just accepts everybody just as long as you have sincerity in your heart. Think about this carefully. About a hundred years ago, maybe there were not such pronounced differences between denomination A, B, and C. But now, 2016 America, the landscape has drastically changed. In 2016 America, some denominations ordain homosexuals as priests. Some groups teach that Jesus was not actually born of a virgin. Some groups teach that the Bible is not actually the inspired Word of God. See, folks, those are some clear and obvious differences, are they? So how can it be then that all these people believing such wildly different things, how is it they can all just be going to heaven and all be saved? Well, I'll tell you how people come to that conclusion. And that is, it just doesn't really matter what you believe. Just as long as you're sincere in what you're doing, that's really the only thing that matters. Yet the Bible never says anything about being sincere and being sincerely wrong and still going to heaven. Look with me in Matthew the 7th chapter. In Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, we meet some folks who are very sincere in their religious practices, and yet we are told that they are not saved. In Matthew the 7th chapter and in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says you can be sincere, you can be sincerely wrong, and in the end, you will be lost. Look in Acts the 10th chapter with me. I'll actually give you a real life example of this. In Acts chapter 10, this is the account of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, we read there beginning in verse 1 about this man. It says at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Notice the qualities about this man. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. It's right here. This is a good man. This is a sincere man. Nobody would ever doubt the sincerity of Cornelius. But in Acts the 11th chapter, whenever Peter is recounting the events that took place just a little while previously... Cornelius was told that Peter is going to come. And Cornelius, Acts chapter 11 and verse 14, Cornelius, Peter is going to declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Do you catch that there? Cornelius was sincere. Good man. Lots of great qualities. But he wasn't saved. And his sincerity did not make him saved. And in much the same way, no one is doubting, I certainly am not doubting the sincerity of people who are a part of denominational Christianity. But what we need to see and what we need to say is that sincerity alone, it's not enough. We need sincerity. Sincerity got Cornelius the opportunity to start doing what was right. 
Yet I want you to notice that Peter did not tell Cornelius and his household. Now you know what? I see that you guys are some real sincere folks. And you know what? Y'all just keep on doing what you... Y'all just keep on being good Gentile folks. Just keep being sincere in what you are. And, you know, just have a good heart with everything that you choose to do. No. Acts 10 and verse 48. Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, it is obedience to the Word of God, not sincerity alone, that causes a person to be saved. Of course, whenever there is no respect for the objective standard of God's Word, then it just follows that people are going to be led to believe that sincerity really is all that you need. Which will bring me then to this final observation this morning, and probably the most painful thing that occurs from having all of these different churches in the world, and that is, it just causes and it creates so much religious confusion. You know, as I said earlier, there are lots of people who think that having all this religious diversity, that it's a, it's a good thing. It's a grand thing. They think it's just wonderful to have all these different churches and all these different choices. I'll tell you this. The people who think that, who really believe that, they've never met my friend Nathan. Can I tell you about my friend Nathan? My friend Nathan recently sent me an email. And in that email, he asked me a series of Bible questions. When I sent Nathan my reply to try to answer and give him some, some verses to think about in answer to his questions, I, I didn't just kind of ask him what it was that, that prompted him to send me this email and to ask all of these Bible questions because when we were younger, when we were in school, I never really knew Nathan to be a, to be a very religious person, to be very interested in, in church and in things of that nature. Nathan then replied with the following. He said, I've been out of church for a long time, but I have kids now. And I want to get back in church and I want to set a good example. The problem is, I don't know where to start. There are so many churches out there and I know they all can't be right. And so I guess the reason I have so many questions is because I'm just confused. Nathan in that email was utterly beside himself because he didn't even know where to begin. And I'll be honest with you that as I read his email and read his response, it made me angry. Not angry at Nathan, but at those who in the name of Jesus Christ would dare to perpetuate religious diversity and disunity as if it were something to be proud of, as if it were something to be praised and to be embraced. For shame. For shame. Because people are lost. And there are, even amongst those lost people, there are people out there who are searching for the truth. They are looking for the one church that you can read about in the Bible. But the churches of men, they are confusing and clouding and muddying up the issue. They're making it so difficult for people to find Christ's church. Is it any wonder then? Is it any wonder that in some of Jesus' final moments on this earth that He prayed for His followers to be united. Look with me in John the 17th chapter, please. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for unity. But I want you to notice the reason as to why He prayed for unity. In John 17, in verse 20, in John 17, in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in Us. Notice this. Here's why so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
He just says that when Christians are one, that is a powerful testimony to the world. But just as sure as that is true, I believe that Jesus was also keenly aware that when there is division, that too is a powerful testimony to the world and a testimony not in a good kind of way. And unfortunately, that is what caused so much confusion for my friend Nathan and for others just like him. And maybe the takeaway for you and I here is that you and I must be ever so diligent to point those people to the Bible. To just go back to the book. To just lay out, hey, what about this verse? Have you thought about this passage? What's the Bible say here? Help them to see the simplicity and the beauty of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. You know, what would happen? What would happen if every church just followed the Bible? That's kind of a utopian sort of idea. But what would happen if every church just followed the Bible? That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? If every church just followed the Bible, I could tell Nathan, just just go there. Where? Just there. It doesn't matter. Wherever you go, you're going to be taught the truth. There'd be no conflicting doctrines, which means there'd be no confusion, which means we wouldn't have to deal with all of this nonsense, and instead we could just help people to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That we could just help people to grow deeper in their love and in their relationship with the Lord, instead of having to waste so much time on basic stuff like this, like how many churches there should be. But I hope you've seen this morning With absolute clarity, two important truths. Number one, Jesus built one church. And then secondly, when we don't follow Jesus' plan, bad things happen. Confusion and difficulty of every kind. One final passage this morning, and it's in Ephesians again, in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, this great epistle that talks so much about Christ's church and about our role in it, our relationship to the church, who we are and what we're all about, Paul borrows the marriage metaphor to describe Christ's relationship to the church. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25, he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. Paul says that Jesus died for His church. And if you want to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever, then the answer is not to find whatever religious organization you want, what suits you, no, but to find Jesus' church. In fact, in this very same chapter, if you bump back up to verse 23, Paul says there that Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. That's what I want. I want to be a part of the church for which Jesus is the Savior. What He died for, I want to be a part of that church. And I know what all of this then leads people to then ask as I'm speaking this morning, and that is... Josh, are you saying that the Lakeside Church is that church? Well, I would say this. I believe we're sure trying to be that church. 
You know, I don't have all of the time in the world this morning to talk about all of the characteristics and qualities of Christ's church and then compare Lakeside to what we read about in the New Testament. That would be a whole other lesson for a whole other time. But what I am simply saying this morning is this, is that all of us here, we can count to one, and that's how many churches there ought to be. Are you a member of Christ's church? If you're not, you sure need to be. We're going to sing a song in just a moment to encourage you to be a part of the body of the saved people that belong to Jesus Christ. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, then we are giving you this opportunity to do just that, to render your obedience to the Lord in baptism. If you are a Christian, but you are away from the Lord, brother or sister, this is an invitation for you as well to return to the Lord in humility and in repentance and in prayer. It may just be, I may have a whole separate category here of folks I'm talking to this morning, it may just be that you have questions about these things. Maybe some of these things that I've talked about this morning, maybe they are, maybe they're a little bit new to you. And maybe you're still trying to sort through all of this. You know what? That's okay. That is perfectly okay. We realize that there is so much confusion in religion today. And what we would like to do is we'd like to help you navigate through all of that mess, through all of the different things that are being taught, to do that with an open Bible so that you can come to an understanding of and then ultimately render your obedience to the Gospel of the Lord. Whatever your need may be, we stand ready to assist you. If you'll just make your wishes known, do that right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.